A lot of reason people can't embrace change is because they just make it too big. And if we could just break it down into smaller parts, I think we'd start getting some steps forward and we'd see some more progress, right? So maybe I'm not going to have three donuts a day, but I'll just have one, that kind of a thing. So, you know, baby steps rather than all this big, huge, disruptive stuff in terms of changing our lives might allow us to embrace change a little bit more positively. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with the irrepressible Lisa Bedell. And Lisa is talking to a thousand people today in Orlando. Normally she's in New York. She's the CEO of FutureThink. She's an author. She's written a couple of fantastic books, one called Kill the Company and the other one called Simplify. And we chat about how to get people to do more of the right things. We talk about perhaps what a great set of values this is. Simplify, curious, and unbossed. So we talk about what does unbossed mean? Talk about how to build culture, some specific things about cut the crap and how to stop stupid rules. And actually, she's got a great example. Accenture did run this stupid rules thing every quarter. People have to submit their stupid rules to be killed. And they actually then have a wall with tombstones on and they have a sort of pictorial wall where they capture the stupid rules that they've killed over time to institutionalize some of these things. What makes meaningful work? A question she asks leaders all the time. How do you define meaningful? Your team, you say you want your team to do meaningful work, but actually you don't have a definition that works. How to build a stop doing list and then how to reward people who stop doing things. I thought that was really interesting. And how about this as a question? What would you do to innovate in this business? And then people do some thinking, linear thinking, and then say, okay, what if, what's the idea that you've got that would get you fired? We go down a stream of consciousness around killer questions, some amazing questions to ask. If we had to cut 20% of what we do, what would it be? Why aren't we doing it? What stops us? Getting people to think, time blocking, thinking time. Love that. So some a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Got loads of things to take away from that and digest and some great book recommendations. I'm sure you'll enjoy my conversation with Lisa as much as I did. Hey, thanks for having me here today. I'm Lisa Bodell. I'm the CEO and founder of FutureThink here in New York City. And we focus on helping companies simplify the way that they work to make space for driving growth and innovation. So those have been my passions for over 20 years. And I'm really about taking a provocative view of how we challenge our assumptions every day. So I'm hoping we can talk about some things that people can start to do to make a difference in their own lives and at work. Lisa, I'm delighted you're here. I hope you can help lots of people because people, they're just busy and they're not winning. And like every day is a grind and it's just miserable for them. 
You know, what's funny is I, I do this thing when I do talks. I, I say to people, I want you to think about 20 years ago, right? So for, you know, all of us that are of a certain age, if someone asked you how you were doing, you probably said, oh, I'm fine. Now, when someone asks you 20 years later how you're doing, what's the first thing everyone says? I'm busy. Busy. And then it becomes a busy off, right? Because that's a badge value. Oh, you think you're busy? I'm busy. Because everyone's trying to flex. And it's not cool. And actually, you know, one thing, though, that I think has been really cool is that COVID has helped a little bit with that. And I truly believe this, that I think we're going to look back on COVID, health issues aside, as one of the most positively transformative times of our lives because it forced us, and we have to be forced, to question our assumptions around the way we work, the work we do, how we live. And frankly, it comes down to how we spend our time. And most people realize they were wasting it. And that's a really reflective moment. And it takes something like COVID for people to really stop and realize, as I like to say, they aren't in a groove, they're in a rut. And they look and feel exactly the same. So sometimes we have to stop, pause, and have something severe happen to realize, holy crap, I'm not spending my time right. I'm just busy, right? That's the whole thing of, I'm not spending, I'm not investing time, I'm spending it. And those are two very different things. we got to start investing it, not just spending it. I don't need to be busy. Well, it's funny because the thing that springs to mind straight away is an anecdote by Peter Atia. And we were just chatting about his new book, Outlive, just before we were recording. And in that book, he says, when he was at medical school a few years ago now, he said about 54% of people who had a first heart attack died of that first heart attack. Good Lord. And of those that didn't die, 85% of them made no lifestyle changes and died of a second or third heart attack. And so it's hard for people to change even when they get a big wake-up call. But, it, you know, it's funny too. It's the big things like that. I mean, they, and you have all those things about people that you know, don't go to the gym or they, you know, they know that they shouldn't smoke, but they do because, you know, we like to be happy if that's what makes them happy, right? It's hard to kick up a, a habit that makes people happy. But we have to realize, especially people like us who go out there and talk all the time, there is a bit of, you need to have some self-deprecating humor around this. I mean, I'm the person that always says I want to lose 15 pounds with a donut in my hand. You know, I really, really like it and I don't want to give it up. I want to lose weight, but I'm not giving up my wine at night. That's just it. But I got to change other things around. It's like a wholesale change. And I also think, you know, we were talking about change before this, which is a heart attack's a pretty severe thing. But I bet a lot of a lot of reason people can't embrace change is because they just make it too big. And if we could just break it down into smaller parts, I think we'd start getting some steps forward and we'd see some more progress, right? So maybe I'm not going to have three donuts a day, but I'll just have one that kind of a thing. So, you know, baby steps rather than all this big, huge, disruptive stuff in terms of changing our lives might allow us to embrace change a little bit more positively. And so how do you think that shows up in the workplace? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I talk a lot about, as I said, simplification and innovation, and people just get stuck. They get stuck because we're creatures of habit. And that's number one, right? We think that doing the same thing over and over again because it's comfortable must be good. And just because it's comfortable doesn't mean it's productive or good for us, right? That's the difference between a groove and a rut. And I think sometimes we have to stop and really think about, is this something where I am investing my time or am I spending my time? And start to shift our mindset towards, if I'm just spending my time, it's not getting me anywhere, that's not productive, no matter how easy or simple or organized it is. I need to be investing my time. And if I'm going to invest my time, what are the steps that I need to take to do that? And rather than thinking, for example, let's use the dieting as an example. I'm going to get rid of, I've said this for 10 freaking years, but I suck at it. I'm, I'm not going to eat sugar. I'm going to exercise every day, right? And I'm going to give up gluten. I have never done that in my life, ever. But now, I, you know what I'm doing? I'm only having one three days a week. So I started with that. And then I said, you know what? I'm just not going to have gluten for breakfast. I just started with tiny steps because I think 
that's going to make a big difference for people. You know, give yourself a break. You're not going to change dramatically overnight. So don't. Yeah. And I think that at work, what that means is rather than saying, I'm going to cancel all my meetings, why don't you just look at having one day without meetings? Why don't you just look at putting things on a time diet and seeing if you can cut things down from 60 to 30? I mean, there's little ways you can take your time back to start feeling more, I should say not more, less risk averse. I think that's one of the problems with people is we're, we're naturally risk averse, right? We like things stable and taking a risk means things could become unstable. We don't like that. Often I might be working with a CEO and in a smaller business and they're still billable and you go, okay, you, you can't be, you need, you need to be less billable or be not billable at all. And then sometimes people go, what will I do with my time? Oh, let's talk about that. People say, well, it's interesting because I was talking with Uvas, who's the CEO of Novartis, and we were saying how one of his things in his organization, this is really smart, right, is to be simplified, curious, and unbossed. And that's so cool because rather than telling people they need to be productive and drive shareholder value, no one gives a shit about shareholder. What he's telling them is here are the behaviors I want you to have every day and think about that with every way you invest your time. So let's talk about the unbossed part, okay? But unbossed means I want you to make decisions for yourself. And what that means for the leaders is starting to let other people make decisions without them. And the hardest thing that they found and others is that suddenly the bosses got what they wanted. They had more time on their hands and they didn't know what to do now that they were unbossed. They were also unbusy and that made them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So getting used to having time to think and making that actual time to think valuable and necessary is important. This is kind of related. We always say how we want to have more time to think, right? And that means being less busy. And then when we get the time to think, we feel like we're being lazy. Right, right. You know how people are like, I'm going to sneak thinking time on my calendar because if people think I'm actually thinking, they must think we're not working. So, I mean, we've got to change the whole corporate mindset that thinking and having space to think and not just being busy is really important because being unbusy can be very productive. I, I just think you can, if you're overscheduled, you just don't see the opportunities. Or if you do see them, you can't take advantage of them. Yeah. But as you were talking, I was thinking about a CEO that I spoke with last year and he I think, broken his ankle. So he needed to really from to recuperate, he needed to swim every day. So I'm like, how is swimming going? No, no, not going, not going. Okay. Went through his diary. How much of the things in your diary do you actually need to do? 20%. Bingo. Okay. You got loads of time. Yeah. But how would my team think? What would my team think of me if I went swimming every day? They would think you're just blowing stuff off. I said to him, okay, what if it was somebody on your team had broken their ankle and they said to you, I'm going to come in half an hour late every day because I'm going to go swimming or I'm going to go swimming at lunchtime. So I'm going to take 90 minutes at lunch. He said, oh, I'd be very supportive of that. And it's just, it's mad. And so he was in his own way. There's no way that he and that business will reach its potential because he's got a scarcity mindset about his own time. So here's what's interesting about this. Yeah. And time's a non-renewable resource, right? We'll never get it back. So it's something interesting to think about. When people ask me, what's the biggest barrier innovating and change. And I'll say, I'll look at the audience. I'll say you, the leadership, because if they don't do it, no one else working for them will do it. Because what holds us back from simplifying and innovating, quite frankly, is fear. And a lot of it comes down to this behavioral fear. I am not going to simplify or get rid of something to make the space for change to happen because I'm worried I'm going to make a stupid decision. I'm going to look bad. I'm going to get fired, right? Fear happens. And the same thing with innovation, taking a risk, right? I'm going to make a stupid decision. I'm going to look bad. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to get fired. 
So if we can minimize the fear and leaders can exemplify the behaviors we want in our teams, people will do it. And I don't think leaders realize how much there's a gap between saying what they want people to do in terms of taking a risk or innovating and actually doing it themselves, right? So I'll, I'm going to use this example of Albert at Pfizer, and he's a CEO there. And before this was in charge of simplicity and innovation. And he realized that his team wasn't getting to innovation because they were in meetings all day. So he told people, what a great boss, just say no to meetings. Well, hooray, right? I'm just going to say no to meetings because they were drowning in meetings. Now, a month later, he realized everyone was still going to all these freaking meetings. Nothing had changed. So he asked his, you know, his kind of chief of staff, his lieutenant, what's going on? And he said, well, they don't say no because you don't say no. You still go to all the meetings. You know, Albert still wanted to show up, right? Fear of missing out, want to look good, be the boss. But the signal that sent to everybody was, I didn't really mean say no. So, I, you know, to your point, it's the same thing, which is until they do it, others won't, they won't do it. They're the same fear. Yeah. In No Rules Rules, Netflix, they found unlimited holiday. They found that actually the staff mirrored the boss's holiday. So although they could take more holiday than the boss, people just didn't. No, because it's bad form. It's culture. You know, so many of the things that hold us back, we do this interesting thing, okay? It's an exercise called killing stupid rules. And I have a lot of killing exercises. I have. <laughs> but killing stupid rules is brilliant, right? Because it gives people permission to get rid of. Our culture is that to be valued, you have to do more, not less. So we are rewarded for more. And so that's why we create the beast that we become a slave to. We don't have time to innovate because we're doing all this work of work stuff. Anyway, kill a stupid rule says, if you could get rid of any two rules that hold you back in your daily work, what would they be? And believe me, people come up with so many suggestions, so many. But you know what you find is most of the things that they come up with aren't rules. They are, right? They're cultural assumptions, they're norms, their fear, their length of meeting. I mean, I've literally been with the CEO of organizations that will look at his leadership and say, who exactly were you waiting for to tell you it's okay to change your meetings from 60 minutes to 30 minutes? Like, are you waiting for me to tell you that? So it's this kind of, it's the cultural norms and the behaviors that hold us back much more than we realize. And it's, it's doing something like that, telling people they can actually challenge assumptions that allows them with the boss to get rid of the stuff that's not working. And that's, that, that has to be woven into our culture more often. I'll help teams create some sort of meeting charter because I think meetings are where your culture is obviously exposed to the world. I've never had anybody not tell me the difference between a good meeting and a bad meeting. You know, give them 10 minutes, they'll write down a list of 100 things that make meetings shit. And then I say, well, and when that happens, what do you do? Deadly silence. We sit in shit meetings all day. And we, nobody goes, excuse me, you're boring. Could you stop talking? Could we do something more interesting? Well, that's the issue. And everyone says, well, we have a culture nice. And I'll go on on a limb and I'll say... I think it's important to provoke. I think a culture of nice is bad. I think a culture of respect is good. And we, nice means obligation, right? You're spending time. Respect is where you can actually better use and invest your time. And if we can get to that and say, okay, it's okay. If this starts to happen, it's okay to say this. So I think it's, to me, it's around some of the cultural norms. Just saying, I'm going to make a shorter meeting. You know, if you got one guy that talks for the whole meeting, it's now it's been a shit meeting. So we've got to still, we've got to change the cultural norms and the language that allow people to push back when it's not going well. And how much time, so we're busy, you know, how much time do people need to free up to innovate? Well, that's relative, right? But I think 
a few things. First of all, I think individuals need to free up thinking time and they need to schedule it. And people are starting to, my suggestion, and others are doing this, I do it, people at Accenture do this, is you need to mandate thinking time. Yeah. Because people won't do it. So I mandate that everyone on my team has to block a half day every week. I don't care when, because everyone thinks differently. I'm a morning person. Other people are afternoon people. And that is unstructured time that is not interrupted, right? Because we can stop that context switching. Yeah. Don't do it an hour here, an hour there. That means you're just going to get stuff done on your to-do list. You need focused time to tackle big things and get in the habit of that. Because eventually what you want is you don't want no meeting Fridays. I'm so tired of that. You want only meeting Fridays, right? We should only have one day for meetings, not just one day without meetings. It's the wrong thinking. Uh huh. So mandating thinking time is one thing. I think another thing in terms of the amount of thinking time that we need people to have is, can we better structure our meetings around thinking? Can when we come together, can it be about thinking versus informing? Uh huh. That's the difference, right? So I think emails are for information. Meetings are for decisions and collaborating. Yep. Phones are for urgency. And if we can get our, better get people in those habits, we're going to better use our meeting time to be collaborative and innovate. That's a lot of time, by the way, versus informing it. Yeah. So yeah, those are some small things. But I think the more we can carve it out mandating thinking time and being able to better use our meetings for thinking rather than informing, that's a good start. Do people know what to do when you give them half a day a week thinking time? No, it's hard. In fact, you know, it takes a while. It's interesting you said that because at first people will say, well, I didn't get to do it last week and I didn't get to do it this week. And as a boss, I had to actually get mad at people and say, well, that's a you problem, right? I've given you the time. Now whose fault is it? You. So I understand if there's a few weeks that you're not going to be able to do it. I mean, come on, I'm on the road, right? I'm sitting here talking to you in a hotel room right now as I travel. So I shift my thinking time that week. But you have to get really, I don't know, strict about it. Because at some point, people like to complain about how others waste their time, but they don't do a really good job of taking control of their own time. So, well, because it comes back to fear again. It does. Right? Because I might be held accountable if I'm so busy that I can't actually get anything done. That's actually quite a comfortable place to be. It is. Because it's okay. Well, then you got an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. I can blame someone else. What's well, interesting. So, I do a lot of, you know, when I speak, I ask people, for example, how good are you with change? Oh, they're great. Or what is your team with change? Not so great, right? It's the same thing with simplification. How much, how good is your team at simplifying? Not great. How good are you at simplifying? I'm amazing. So it, it, the thing with all these problems is, you know, everyone talks about common sense. Everyone thinks they have it. No one else does. So how can we make some of these common sense practices, right? Uh, common practice. And so that's what I try to do is give them these, like these little things I've just told you here, like mandate thinking time, kill stupid rules. You, there's a million other little tips I can give you. Put things on a time diet, pilot getting rid of things, taking small steps, not big ones, can start to get people comfortable and minimize. It's not just about minimizing the friction, right? It's about minimizing the fear. And that's what leaders need to realize. It's not just making a better process. It's minimizing the fear of working around a process, right? So there's there's cultural norms that we need to shift. It's not about doing more. It's about doing valuable. I'll sit down with clients and you know you can have three to five corporate objectives for the next 12 months and no before we know where we are we've got nine you know we're arguing that it should be 11 yep how do you get people to do less and work out the valuable thing to do well the first thing you got to do is define what meaningful work is and if you ask a leader you know what meaningful work is they say yes and then you say what is it <laughs> and it's a you know it's a three-part 50 paragraph multi-part thing they can't articulate it concisely because they haven't really articulated it 
And so what we do is we actually work with teams and we'll say, you know, write down all the things that you spend your time doing and circle the things that are valuable. And of the things that aren't circled, why are you doing them? And how could you get rid of them or minimize them, right? That creates the space for change. And you look at everyone's lists in a group and you realize most of them don't circle many valuable things. Like there's a lot of stuff that's unnecessary. And then what you ask them is, what do you wish you were spending your time doing if you had more of that time? And they can write down a million things. And you realize that there are common themes in those things. And what that's doing is helping a group define for themselves, right, it's going to be different for procurement versus marketing versus legal, what is meaningful. And what you're going to find is the stuff you spend your time doing is internal and the meaningful work tends to be external. And that's what's important is we're spending too much of our time internal and we got to cut that out and define meaningful work in terms of what that means forward facing. So that, that's one exercise they can do to start to get started around getting to meaningful work is actually define what the hell that means. They're throwing around the term, do meaningful work. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, meaningful work. I love that. And, and that's the, getting them to stop doing it. Or they stop doing it or they're finding somebody else to do it. Well, stopping doing it is also really interesting. I actually recommend to clients to weave that into your strategic planning. And what I mean by that, if you want to send a signal is when you have strategic planning, Sanofi actually does this pharmaceutical company, is to tell people in their strategic plans, of course, you want them to present all the incredible things they're going to do next year, but they also have to present the things that they're going to stop doing. And what's really great about that, right, is first of all, they don't ever, they never think that way. So let's institutionalize it. Yeah. If you get them to articulate and commit to what they're going to stop doing, actually what you're doing is getting them to commit to the things that later they would have said were barriers of why they couldn't get things done. Yes. So you're giving them permission up front to say, all right, great. I agree. Stop doing those things. And if later you come back after a quarter or two and they're still doing them, say, why the fuck are you still doing that? Right. So but that's I, what I'm trying to do is get for the leaders to get them to articulate it, commit to it, and institutionalize it as part of the culture. And then you being able to say, that's a you problem. I told you you could stop it and you didn't. What are you doing? So that's that's another easy thing that you can start to do. And even better, if you can reward them for stopping doing things. Like, we don't do that. We reward people for all the things they get done, but are any of those things that they got rid of? And that's that, you're starting to see that more and more, actually. Now, you know, I'm talking a lot about this getting rid of, but it's directly related to innovation because my thesis is simplifying things, right? Unnecessary stuff is like weeds. It grows back even when you get rid of it. But if you institutionalize simplifying things, that creates a space for innovation to happen. Simplicity is the front end of innovation because if I go out and tell people to, to innovate right now, they're not going to do it. You know why? They're busy. Yeah. They're busy. They don't have time. So I've got to create the space so they can start to feel safe and start to think about new things. Because otherwise, it's just going to be easy to keep doing the same old stuff. They're not going to get fired. Yeah. Typically. So that's good. I, now, leaders are a different story. Leaders, you got to shake them a little bit. They like to use excuses, too. We were talking about this about build a company. So strategic planning is one thing for teams. But I think the problem with leaders is I don't think people are leading. I think they're managing, right? They're executing their calendars and they're managing. They're not really leading. Leading is right. Thinking forward beyond just the next quarter or the next year. It's three to five years. It's, it's major telescope stuff, not microscope stuff. And they don't have time to think about that because they, they're older now. They've been doing it this way forever. They're risk averse because their ass is on the line. But it's hard for them to get out of their own construct. So we, we actually work a lot with leaders and tell them to kill their old company. And how that works is we ask them to pretend that they're their own competitor and to put themselves out of business. And what's cool about it is, is that it mandates, it forces, it makes a safe space to say, you know, you must put yourself out of business. 
I want you to identify all the weaknesses, all the crap, all the things that if you were a competitor, you would take yourself down. And people come up with so much stuff. And then you organize it, you prioritize it, and then you realize you can turn it back on your own competitor. So it's a really productive exercise to get out of your own head and to shake up the way that you work again and realize what is really necessary and what is your weak spot. We're always posturing, right? We're always given the SWAT. We're always give so many strengths and so many weaknesses, but those are really opportunities. And, you know, if we could really just rephrase it in terms of weaknesses, I think it would give people a lot more permission to be honest versus political. Anyway, my two cents to kill your company. Are they then looking at that and going, which of this do we already do? So that sort of, if we were the competition, how would we kill us? Or if we, and then they're saying, oh, look, we don't need competition. We're already doing it to ourselves. Uh, well, some, you mean some of the problems are coming from within versus yeah. competition? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that reflection comes, which is, in fact, that is the big aha, which is the competition isn't making us do all these things necessarily, but the call's coming from inside the house, so to speak. Like, we're the ones that are creating, we're creating the beast that we become a slave to. Like, the competition isn't making you run more data. You're running more data needlessly in all these reports. The competition isn't making you do these crappy processes. You're doing these crappy processes. And I'm, I'm using those internal issues, but, you know, it's, you're not creating the time to innovate, and they are. So... What are you going to do about it? The, the big thing is when you have regulated industries, they will use regulation as an excuse. And, you know, we work, I'd say 90% of our work is with regulated industries because we think it's harder. And if we can do it with them, we can do it with anybody. But, you know, a pharma company is going to tell you, well, we can't do X, Y, Z because we're regulated. And the pushback on that, same thing with a bank is, well, then how come other people in your industry can do it and you can't? Same regulations. And what's interesting is McKinsey had a paper out few months ago, looking at drug development teams in global pharma. Yeah. And 85% of those teams said they were above average. Everyone's above average. But then it said, it said the top 1% were 10x average and the next sort of two, three, four, five percent 5% were 5x average. So I've always seen that sort of personal delusion at, at an individual level, but it's obviously true because people are focused internally. They don't know when you say to them, well, how can anybody else do it? That the fact that you know and they don't comes a surprise to them. It's like you're not in their industry and yet you know more about the competition than they do. People get very, very internally focused. Well, okay. So here's another thing about innovation is that one of the things we talk about if you want to overcome your own barriers, and this is also a cognitive principle you probably know, is that we're not good at solving our own problems because we're too close to them, right? I mean, obviously, if they were solvable, I would have solved it already. So, I mean, I'm making fun of myself, right? I do it too. So if you want to solve your problems, give them away. And we do this, as called from impossible to possible. And what happens is we work, have people write down all the things that are impossible. You got to be very specific, right? You can't say world hunger. You got to make it a weekly meeting. I don't know. But you break down all the assumptions around that impossible thing. And you say, it is true that, for example... We have to meet weekly. There have to be these 10 people in the meeting. It has to be at this time. We have to cover these, subjects, whatever. And then, it, but we'll never be able to improve this meeting because of all these assumptions. Well, then you give away your assumptions to someone else. They have to make those impossibles that can never be changed possible. And what's great about it is the minute you give it away, people kind of get their war mentality on. They are so good at solving other people's problems. And what you find is that everyone's able to solve everyone else's problems. And bonus points, actually, if you do this exercise with people completely outside of your group or team, because, right, or outside of your own industry, because they really come up with avant-garde solutions that you're too caught up in and can't can't see. So that, that's another thing to try. But people, 
people get nervous about that because they don't want to open up their problems to other people. Well, I think inside a team, often if I'm working with an organization and they're setting some OKRs, just you write down your own goals for the next 90 days. That makes sense to you. You give them to the person sitting next to you in the room. They make no sense whatsoever to the person sitting next to you, right? But it's the, and it's the same thing, or, or you've got a KPI that, or a key result that you're putting in and the, the other person just says, really? That sounds rather lame. And it's, it's the same, it's the same thing. Other people's problems look very different to you because no. you don't have any of the baggage or the assumptions or the busyness or, or all these reasons why it's not going to work. Yeah. And teaching people not to resist the feedback actually is really important too. Because your first response when people give you solutions is, oh no, we can't, we can't do that. So our- You don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand. But I like the impossible to possible. I've been thinking there's a- Right. I guess there's a, Dan Sullivan's just written a new book called 10X is easier than 2X. And it's the same thing, which is, you know, if you can- Instead of saying, we want you to double the company and everyone goes, oh God, we're so busy. And it's like all linear thinking, right? All, you know, it's just like, we're just going to make us do more, but with no more resources. You say, right, we've got to 10X it. Okay, well now I've actually got to deliberately change my mindset. I've deliberately got to give some stuff up. I've got got to solve this problem a different way because it's now, it doesn't matter whether it's 10X or 5X or 20X, but it's, it's just different scale. Well, and you probably know this too from, we do all these these training exercises to shake people up. A key thing you do is when you have people brainstorm, in the middle of it, you interrupt them and you say, okay, now, rather than all these ideas, which you gave us and are probably very incremental and we've heard them before, now I want you to just give me ideas that would get you fired. Everyone goes, what? What do you mean? No, I want you to give me ideas that'll get you fired. Any idea. They go on fire. And of course, then you get the usual initial stuff that involves like, drugs, you know, like they go off the rails. But then the reality is, guys, we're all adults. We're not going to prove these ideas. Like anything like that, that's illegal and you're going to go to jail. We're not going to do that. But let's look at these other ones. Now, what are the themes? And you start to see like, oh, we partnered with people in a completely different industry we wouldn't have thought of. Oh, we're going to get rid of this industry and we're going to kind of sell off this division. That's not a bad idea. So anyway, but it's giving people permission, as I like to say, to brainstorm with guardrails, not handcuffs. And so if we can kind of give them those stretches, to your point, to 50x, people come up with some pretty good stuff. You're talking later on this afternoon. What are some of the other tips you're giving to the thousand people who are listening to you in Orlando? Oh my gosh. So we're talking about, un- you know, the idea is when you're unleash innovation, as they like to say, it's all about how do they embrace change, right? How can we get them to think about the future from a position of strength? Because I think people right now, they're burned out, especially these years after COVID, because they've been in a defensive position. And what I want to do is give them simplicity and innovation tips to give them the space to be in the offensive position. That's the key. We talk about killing stupid rules. We talk about stopping it. We also talking about asking killer questions, another killer. Uh The reason I say that is because I think what a leader can do is start to, in their own vernacular, just ask questions that allow people one to think. So for example, in your next meeting, what if you said, hey guys, If we had to give away our products and services for free right now, how else are we going to make money? Or, hey, I want to know by the end of this meeting, if we had to cut 20% of the work that we do right now, 20%, you have to stop it right now. What would you get rid of and why? Or, guys, if we had to go see customers, here's a sales question. If we had to go see our customers tomorrow and you can only ask them one question, what question are you too scared or embarrassed to ask? And what I'm getting at there, right, is... 
teaching people to ask better questions, like killer, provocative questions, helps people learn how to stretch their thinking. Because I, I don't know. I ask people, when's the last time you were in a meeting and you were asked a really provocative question? People can't remember. That, I think, is a great example of your difference between leadership and management. I agree. Yeah. It's like, again, how do you exemplify those behaviors? And that's another small thing you can do. There's a few great books on curiosity that I can share with you too, that I think would get people going on that. I'm a big fan of Warren Berger and he wrote A More Beautiful Question. Simon Brown, he's currently at Novartis. He wrote The Curiosity Advantage, which is another great book. And he talks about the seven C's and how to be more curious. Adam Grant's Think Again. Adam's a friend. I think his book, Think Again, was really great about how we can question the way that we think. And it's good to know what we don't know. So those are some ways to get people starting to think a little bit differently. And what what are some of the things that you do or suggest unlock the habits that people are in? I mean, we talked about not going to meetings and saying no is a is a thing, but what are some of the other tangible things that you can get people to do or not do? To I'm sorry, to think differently? No, it's what's the 20% thing? What work would we cut? Once people have been thinking differently, then they go, go back to their business and they're busy. Well, yeah, that's just it. That's why, you know, we talk about doing these things. They, they have to be institutionalized. That's why I said, like, stopping it needs to be institutionalized. Telling stupid rules needs to be done every quarter. In fact, the just on that note, to institutionalize it, like with Accenture, there are certain groups that do it every quarter and they actually created a rule graveyard. And it's a cemetery where every rule that they actually killed was put on a little tombstone and they made it visible. So everyone can see, right? that this is something that is part of the culture, right? Rules are like weeds, they grow back. And remember, getting rid of things creates envy in a good way because everyone's like, well, how come they got to kill those zombie meetings? How come they got to get rid of that process? Well, no one said you could, you just didn't. That envy thing, it is. It's one of those sort of, don't want to upset people. It's hard in an organization. You know, you do something like that and people go, Oh, I wish I'd thought about that. And then it's like, okay, you've made me look stupid because I didn't think about it. So I'm going to punish you or make it hard for you to do that again because you've made me feel stupid. Well, so I think that's interesting, right? It's These are good things to actually advertise to people because you want to make... Simplicity and innovation can be very contagious once people don't have fear. So you need some role models and they make your group the role model, Right. And start to do small things that start to get people to realize change can happen. It's safe. And then advertise the hell out of it so other people will want to copy you, right? I think there's a, there's a few other things people can do. You can, I love starting cut the crap committees, actually, right? Assign people on your team to be like work anthropologists and study, study their coworkers in the wild for a month and observe all the crap that we do as a group that we don't see, right? Because I, sure, I do a lot of crap during the week that I don't realize. And people report back at the end of the month and say, here are four or five things I think that we should cut. And you're mandating that this is their job for a month. So they feel safe reporting back on crap they've seen. So that's another good one. Another great one that is interesting for you to do is reversing your assumptions. And this is kind of like impossible to possible, but when you have assumptions around a process or you have assumptions around how something has to be, have people then give you the opposite or alternatives to all those assumptions. And what I mean about that is, if you think about a, you know, the way a, I don't know, a project has to be run, write down all your assumptions about that project. And then for every one of those assumptions, like we have to have a weekly meeting. I'm just doing meetings because everyone knows those things. The reverse of that assumption 
isn't just no meetings. It's everyday 10 minute meetings. It's just, I don't know, only one meeting a month. It's how can we come up with lots of different ways to do things versus the usual suspects? Another good one that I think is interesting for people to do is, oh, how do I want to say it? They need to rethink their, their email habits. And I'm sorry to say this, but like we are just drowning in emails. But if they could, as a team, to start using Bluff bottom line up front in their emails, I think people would stop sending so many emails and they would get to the point faster. And Bluff stands for bottom line up front. Like at the front of every email that goes out from my team, there's Bluff and it says exactly what this email is about. And then I can read from there. But I know right at the start, Bluff, I, I need you guys to send me slides by Friday. Bluff, I need to get you guys to give me your input on these three things. I so appreciate it because people get to the point faster and they don't lead up to their crap. They get to the point. Often people realize when they're forced to say what they're really trying to get at in an email, they sometimes realize they don't need to send that email. They can just pick up the phone. You'll cut down on email traffic just by doing that. It, it made me think about, I spent a lot of my corporate life working for North American businesses. And there was a, a sheet that got sent around, which was, you know, the difference between Americans and English people. And one of the things was, we'll have an hour meeting. And at minute 55, the Englishman will say, there's one last thing, which what, by what he means is the other 55 minutes had just been small talk. Now we've got like the meeting. Oh no. The opposite of bluff, you know, so not wanting to have a difficult conversation. We'll spend 55 minutes not having it. Yeah, that's the other thing too. People are just avoiding, but you need a role model. I mean, the big thing for me is what can people do? You need to have somebody that role models the behavior. So here's one last one. Um, it would be really good for people to write down, I'm doing this tomorrow actually. Let's talk about innovation, not simplification. What makes an innovative leader? And you have people tell a story of when they've worked for somebody or experienced someone who was really innovative and what those characteristics are. And people will say things like courage or you know, foresight or those kinds of the curiosity. And as a group, you decide on what really the top five or six things are that make a, a leader, an innovative leader, an innovative team. And then you all look at those characteristics and you say, which ones are we good at and which ones are we bad at? And what you find is that nobody agrees <laughs> on which ones they're all good at and which ones they're bad at. And it starts you to have a really good discussion around what are the things that we need to build internally? What do we need to hire for, right? Or what else do we need to train up on? So just articulating those characteristics, I think, can make a big difference because there are lots of different ways to be an innovative leader, but we need to decide what are the characteristics we want to hold ourselves accountable to. I, I really wish that somebody had, you know what I wish? <laughs> what I teach more psychology courses. And the reason why is because, you know, we do all this stuff in business school, et cetera. And, you know, we talk a lot about whatever processes. It's all about human behavior. It really is. So I, I say that, for example, around innovation and simplicity, that it's all about, you know, we drown in tactical things all day, but all that's driven by risk, gear, power, control, and trust. And the more we can understand the psychology behind why people do things, the more we'll be able to get to what really matters. What is driving them to do the things that they're doing? And if we can better address that, the behavior versus the tactic, I think that we're going to get people to change more. Very good. And we, were those your book recommendations that we that you chipped in there about curiosity or have you got some others? You know, there's, other, there's two others I'd add in there. Ah, perfect. Speaking of, you know, I, a little bit about this is the psychology. And this is interesting. I'm a big fan of the artist's way, which anybody here who is a creative person like myself as a writer or a screenwriter and artist read the artist's way, which is something that came out in, it's a, 
a book or a process by Julia Cameron. It came out in the 80s, believe it or not. And it had a real resurgence during COVID because it, it basically builds you up and breaks you down in terms of what holds you back from being creative and why. And a lot of it has to do with fear. So it's a really good book and actually a program you can put yourself to. It's all about writing and writing out just your thoughts. I think having quiet time to do that every day is very, very powerful for people. The other one I would tell people to do is a book by Priya Parker, and it's The Art of Gathering. And it's not just about how to have better meetings, but how do we come together to be more productive? So we actually collaborate and have a purpose versus just setting out a link from Zoom. So The Art of Gathering, I think, is a real methodical way to look at why do we gather and what is the purpose of gathering and how can we make gathering more fulfilling. Okay. Oh, God, fulfilling meetings. That sounds perfect. Yeah, not all gatherings are meetings. So that's another difference, too. Brilliant. Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you. It's been great. It flew by. Well, God, I thought that was like five minutes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.